0: Hello and welcome to Reactives Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evi Chiori, and this week our podcast is focusing on the rise of the suicide rates amongst Europe's youth, the increase of depression among EU citizens, what has been done and what can we do better. We are also talking about the new EU taxonomy, what does it include? Which are the teething issues and why do we have reactions on it by climate activists such as Dominika Lasota and Luisa Neubauer from Fridays for Future? The COVID-19 pandemic has strained the mental health of Europeans and suicide amongst young people is rising. Around 40 million Europeans are dealing with depression. And to shed some light on how European countries are facing these issues, I spoke with Euractiv's editor Alice Taylor. Alice, you wrote a very important article on Euractiv.com on the rise of the suicide rates amongst uh, Europe's youth. Now, this is a topic that isn't widely discussed. What did your research show and why do you think we don't focus often on these topics? Well, I
1: I wanted to focus on this topic because, as you said, uh, suicide and mental health issues such as depression and anxiety are just not talked about. Uh, We don't talk about them with our families and friends. They aren't addressed at a government level and, quite honestly, they don't win votes. Um, But they are important because I feel that this is an, an issue that impacts all of us. Um, I looked at some statistics earlier and almost 60,000 people commit suicide in Europe every year. 40 million suffer with depression and 25 million with anxiety. So, I mean, looking at those figures, you can, you can say safely that this is an epidemic or a pandemic even.
0: And since you're referring to statistics and to these huge numbers, that is important to clarify that these are individuals that are combating mental health issues daily. I spoke with Laura Marchetti, who is policy manager at Mental Health Europe, one of the largest European non-governmental organizations focusing on the promotion of positive mental health, the prevention of mental distress, and the improvement of mental health care. So I spoke to Laura to gain a clearer image, not only on the statistics, but also on the reasons that are leading to the increase of the suicide rates and uh, mental health problems. And uh, this is what she had to say.
2: Fortunately, for the past couple of years, we had um, a variety of data and statistics that has been showing that mental health um, has, has declined uh, among the general population and among young people in particular since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. The latest data from the OECD shows that there is an incidence of mental health problems um, among young people aged between 15 and 24. Um, And this incidence has doubled in most European countries uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. And if we look at the same set of data, we see the young people um, are 30% to 80% more likely to experience depression and anxiety than adults. And similar data are also available for the level of loneliness. Some of the data available from UNICEF Unfortunately, uh, continues to show that suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people. And it, it is re- estimated that around three young people lose their life to suicide every day in Europe. Why do we
0: have this rise and how is the COVID pandemic affecting our mental health?
2: First of all, it, it's important to note that um, already before the pandemic started, uh, there was an increase in mental health distress. Uh, among Europeans, and this was also related to the fact that mental health support and services uh, were not fully available and accessible to the whole population. And now, since March 2020, of course, given that services and general support has been disrupted, this is something that has also impacted uh, the provision of mental health care, of course.
0: And focusing more on the youth population, what is happening there?
2: If we look specifically at young people, um, we know that the general lockdown measures and the closure of a variety of institutions from school, universities, but also leisure centres, has contributed to the weakening of what we can consider to be protective factors for young people, like daily routine, social interactions. Um, All of those factors that contributed to the well-being of a person were not there anymore. And these factors for young people not only can function as a form of protection, but um, they are also known to be as a sort of detector to kind of sense the general level of well-being of a person. So now we we have a lot of professionals that also note the fact that young people tend to turn to support, to mental health support, much later than before, and with a higher level of of distress than before. And this is also related to the fact that all of this um, structure is not there anymore. And we know, particularly at, at young age, how much um, social interaction are are important.
0: And Alice, returning to you now, you directed your research in different EU countries and with the help of the EURACTIVE network, you managed to gather some valuable information. Uh, Could you tell us if there are similarities and differences among the countries you're mentioning in the article and what did strike you mostly when it comes to the information you gathered?
1: Before I wrote the article, I had an idea of what I was going to find. And I was a bit sad um, to find that what I feared was exactly the case, which was that most countries, I mean... uh, They're very different in terms of what they offer. Some provide a lot of help, some almost none. But the main and most striking similarity across the board is the fact that there are not enough mental health professionals. There are not enough services to help people. There is not enough funding. Waiting lists are too long and many people are not getting the help they need. And like you just said, what struck me was the fact that these aren't just statistics, you know. Each one of these numbers is a human being and an individual and when we look at that in the context of something else I discovered which was the worrying trend in youth feeling suicidal, this is the future of Europe we're talking about and they're struggling every day and they're obviously quite clearly falling through the cracks in a system that isn't supporting them.
0: What has been done so far in each country and what are the proposed solutions? There are several countries, you know, they talk about supporting
1: mental health or investing in mental health, but it either hasn't materialized or hasn't made much of an impact. Um, this was an issue before the pandemic. It's been made by worse by the pandemic and it's going to continue to be an issue long after the pandemic has gone. Um, Now, if people aren't getting this help, it's going to impact relationships, working life, social and home life and society as a whole. So this is something that politicians really should not be ignoring. Now, the country I was most disappointed by was Italy. Um, And that was a surprise that the government have made a number of promises that they have consistently failed to follow through on. Um, And this is an example that words are of absolutely zero benefit unless they're followed by concrete action. So in Bulgaria as well, I was horrified to see that while the number of suicides is not necessarily increasing, that up to 70% of people who take their own lives are young people. Um, And when you look at this in the context that there's no state-sponsored suicide prevention programs, you know, this is a really serious situation. In Poland, you have a situation with one psychiatrist for every 20,000 children, This is horrendous as well, Um, but there were some countries who, okay, they're not perfect, but at least they appear to be making more of an effort. Slovenia started a campaign at the beginning of the pandemic to combat the rise in mental health issues. In Slovakia as well, there were various committees set up and they provide free services where people can video call and text therapists. I thought this was important because, especially in the context of increasing issues with youth, you know, providing video call, text, et cetera, you know, it's it's more accessible to young people. Um, In Finland as well, it was great. They had 18 separate suicide helplines that target different demographics. Um, And the authorities announced a mental health strategy with lots of different pillars, including involving the media in the campaign, which is very important. But even in these countries, which are doing something right, um, the issue persists, long waiting lists, understaffing and underfunding.
0: Now, leaving behind what has been done so far, I asked Mrs. Marchetti, what can we do better and where can our listeners turn to?
2: I would first of all suggest to check our website, uh, www.mhe-sme.org, because there we have created a variety of um, resources that can cater different needs. So... There, if they need support, they can find, for instance, a map of the different helpline and services that are available at the European level and at the national level. They can also find a page that is dedicated to COVID-19 and mental health, where they can find tips on how to take care of mental health, but also they can find information in different languages. They can find interviews with experts and professionals, as well as they can find information about relevant policy initiatives. In the resource part of our website, they can find a variety of short guides uh, on specific topics related to mental health, to kind of zoom in and understand better, for instance, what it means to receive a psychiatric diagnosis, what it means to decide to take um, medication, for instance, or what recovery means.
0: Finally, Alice, what is your view on this? What can the governments and the EU do better?
1: I think the governments and the, at an EU level, there needs to be a concerted recognition of the fact that this is a serious, wide-ranging issue and that not enough is being done and that they're failing EU citizens and citizens in each respective country and there needs to be a standardization of access to mental health services across the entire block. Being able to get access to a professional who could help you save your life should not depend on where you live.
0: You're listening to Your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on youractive.com newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our Digital Brief podcast and AgriFood Brief podcast. And now moving to one of the most prominent topics of the EU's agenda, the new taxonomy and the reactions it's gathering from environmental activists, I'm joined by EurActiv's energy and environment reporter, Kira Taylor, who will try and break down for us the teething issues of the taxonomy. Kira, we haven't talked about the new EU taxonomy together on the podcast yet. And I think this is the time to break it down a little bit, uh, specifically because there have been lots of reactions and oppositions from climate activist groups. Why do we have these reactions and what is the taxonomy proposing? Oh, thank
3: you for having me to discuss this. The taxonomy is really, really complex, so I'll try my best to explain it. What we're currently talking about is a list of investments that the EU has decided are good for the environment, or will help transition to a sustainable environment. In the latest draft list, the EU labelled nuclear energy and fossil gas as transitional investments. There's been a storm brewing around this in Brussels for several months now. EU countries were demanding that the EU publish this list, known in EU jargon as the second delegated act. Um, And many were calling for nuclear and fossil gas to be included in it uh, back in the autumn. But it really came to a head on New Year's Eve when the European Commission sent out this draft and it was immediately leaked. We basically had it uh, within about seven, eight hours of it uh, going out. In that draft, the EU nailed its colours to the mast and said, we believe that nuclear and fossil gas are, to an extent, worth investing in for Europe's green future. It's a relief, I think, for the nuclear and gas industry because the taxonomy is the thing you need to be in. Uh, To Nick from many, many American films, being in the taxonomy is a bit like being in the popular clique. You're going to be noticed more. These technologies want to be in because they see it as necessary to get certain investments. But the inclusion of nuclear and fossil gas also saw outrage from some lawmakers, some countries, particularly Austria and Luxembourg, and climate activists too. And that's where Luisa Neubauer and Dominika Lasota's protest comes in.
0: And since you're mentioning the climate activists, I'll take the the chance and I will mention that you did have two very interesting interviews this Wednesday with Dominika Lasota and Luisa Neubauer that will be published on youractive.com, touching upon the teething issues of the EU taxonomy.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that they said in this interview and some really unmistakable anger. I want to pick up on a couple of things they said. First of all, Louisa mentions greenwashing, which is where companies say they are making good choices for the environment, but actually, if you look in detail, those aren't very good choices. The taxonomy was designed to get rid of greenwashing, and it was initially welcomed by
0: climate activists for that reason. Exactly. And what I noticed is that in both interviews, one of the main points that was uh, made was the exclusion of the nuclear energy from the taxonomy. Let's hear what Dominica and Luisa had to say on this.
4: Currently, the debate in the European Union is, especially in regards to the taxonomy, is about those transitional fuels. Um, many of the representatives of the EU deem and call fossil gas and nuclear the transitional fuels. But what we as Fridays for Future are calling out and what we object is the fact that in a taxonomy that is supposed to be, you know, allowing and deciding on what are the sustainable activities that will lead us to the European Green New Deal, um, we object for the inclusion of the fossil fuels and for the nuclear energy because those are not transitional fuels according to what we stand for and to what science says.
0: At the same time, Luisa referred to the importance of greenwashing of the framework. Well, I mean, we, we're looking at a framework that's supposed to prevent greenwashing here. That is a very, you know, very meaningful and uh, important step to go, but it won't work as long as the EU itself then greenwashes the whole framework. And we do know for a fact that neither fossil gas nor nuclear um, are for effect sustainable. And now back to you, Kira. There is no trust shown uh, to nuclear energy whatsoever. Activists prefer the already existing renewable energy sources.
3: Yeah, it's clear that Luisa and Dominika just do not see nuclear or gas as transitional activities. And that means that they see the taxonomy as greenwashing. For the nuclear and gas industry, though, it's quite different. And also for EU countries like Poland and the supporters of these technologies. All of them see that these two energy sources as a way to help the transition to a net zero society. I mean, it's true that we're not going to have the entirety of Europe electrified by 2050. So there will be a transition from fossil gas to renewable gases. And nuclear particularly is a very sensitive subject. It's clear most fossil gas will have to go at some point, particularly as Europe tries to cut down on its carbon emissions. Um, but nuclear is likely to stick around for much longer and it's nearly zero emissions. So for the nuclear industry, they really see it as a way to support the green transition and to support
0: renewable energy. Another thing that was mentioned again by both Luis and Dominica is how political this has become. So let's hear their position on this getting away from one fossil fuels and entering another fossil fuel and calling that a good step that can only come from someone who has clearly not understood the task here and dominica took the chance to explain what concerns her more than the energy itself i am very much concerned about you know the waste that this kind of energy
4: source comes with um, but even more so than than the than you know this uh, the, the the specifics and the characteristics of the energy source itself I'm very much concerned about the kind of the political effect that the nuclear energy um, is creating at the political scene here in Poland and also in the EU. Because what it does is that it allows the politicians to put out the sense of, put out to the public that they officially care and that they, they do
0: something by promising us this energy source. And Kira, you've been interviewing, talking, researching all the aspects of the matter. What's your take on the political one?
3: Yeah, I think my life has been taxonomy for about the last two weeks now. It feels like I've just been in this taxonomy bubble. And one thing is that it has really become very, very political. This is a really niche piece of EU law. Um, But it's been jumped on by so many different groups and there is now a really heated debate around the role of nuclear and gas. I think this is kind of the Pandora's box of energy policy at the moment. The European Commission also didn't do themselves any favours by how they handled this. They sent out a draft on New Year's Eve and then gave a very short time period for people to analyse it. I've spoken to several sources in the European Parliament in the last 24 hours. Most of the groups, whether they like nuclear gas or not, are furious at the fact that the European Commission consulted EU countries and didn't consult them. Parliament is now demanding, at the very least, a hearing. To paraphrase a conversation I had with one of the lead parliamentary negotiators for the taxonomy this morning, lawmakers are divided on the role of nuclear and gas, but they are united on the fact that the European Commission did not consult Parliament enough. Now, that might be an issue for the European Commission, because it will need Parliament to at least not block the taxonomy. It can't make amendments to it, but the Parliament can block it. I hasten to add that the Commission didn't have to consult the Parliament. Both EU countries and lawmakers signed over control to the European Commission by saying that they wanted nuclear and gas and and all of the other um, transitional and sustainable activities to be covered in a delegated act. But they're still annoyed about this. And that brings me to the final point that I find interesting from the Fridays for Future interviews. They are really diving into the details of this. And you see it across a lot of their activism now, particularly when it came to CAP, and now it's coming to the taxonomy. I think there's a tendency to see climate activism as these marches and school strikes. But these people are now delving into the details of climate legislation and finding the things they don't like and now being very vocal about the things they don't like. So we have the industry, lawmakers, EU countries and climate activists following this taxonomy exceptionally closely. I don't think it's going to go away for a while. And I think it's probably going to be something that I continue covering for quite a while yet.
0: Well, stay strong, Kira. And thank you for this short but very meaningful analysis of the EU taxonomy and the reactions around it. You can watch the whole interview with Dominique Kalasota and Luisa Neubauer on Euractive.com and on our YouTube channel. Our time is up for this week. I am Evi Kiori and this was Your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit youractive.com for the latest news. And don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening.